Welcome to this week's edition of Two Men in the Middle, where two men in the middle of the heartland talk about politics, news, and current events. I'm Brandon Kinnig. I'm Craig Huey. So, Craig, the big issue this week, uh, Roe v. Wade, the leak of the uh, draft court decision was a bombshell earlier this past week. That's all everybody's been talking about all week and the ramifications of this. And I feel like this is one of those issues ever since the Amy Coney Barrett nomination was a fear. But then I think many people comforted themselves with the fact that it's precedent. It's been around for 50 years. It's still not going to happen. We we know that Amy Coney Barrett and Gorsuch and Kavanaugh during confirmation hearings, you know, gave statements that seemed to indicate it was settled law as well. It was super precedent. That's right. Super precedent was the language used. And and now we he- we're on the precipice of seeing this completely overturned, uh, and and that's significant for a number of reasons. But um, first and foremost, like what what is the response here? I mean, what can Democrats do? How can they react? They're going to schedule a vote in the Senate to codify uh, abortion rights into Which law. They won't get. They won't. But that, they don't have. They'll filibuster that. That'll yeah. never come for a vote. They'll, they'll filibuster. They don't have the votes for that. Uh, so, do we just, you know, what do we do? I, I did. I, I didn't think this would be the outcome. I thought they would chip away at this again, like they've done in the past. But I didn't think a full reversal of Roe was on the table. So maybe let's start off with a few things that we both agree on. I, I think we both agree that Roe legally, as a legal decision, is filled with holes. These are well documented. We're not legal scholars, but it's easy to kind of understand the argument that the Supreme Court simply made up law kind of out of whole cloth during all of this. And this was a very shaky legal decision from from day one. That, right. that was always the case. Secondly, too, I think we can both agree on that this leak is very, very bad. This is not like other leaks. This is the Supreme Court. This is... It's, more, it's an incredible break with precedent. It is. I mean, and, you have to go back to the 1800s. I think the 1870s, the last time you saw... There's been partial leaks, but never something like this. Like this. Yeah. And I think the Democrats really need to come up with a better strategy in this phase of where we're at for, for acknowledging the leak, how bad it was, and taking steps to shore that up. I'm assuming that this came from one of the liberal justices' staff. This has to be somebody on Kagan or Sotomayor's staff would make the most sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I've heard that's most likely. There is a point of view that says it could have been somebody on the conservative side to Possibly. just buffer the justices like uh, Gorsuch and Damn. Kavanaugh to keep them in the mode of their decision and make sure that they don't flip since it's really a draft decision they could still change their minds but i think it's more likely it came from the liberal side yeah. uh, to i think get the word out there have an impact on the midterms that's how i would see it use it as a rallying cry and uh, a couple of things about this decision we know that it was written by alito yep. uh, and matched his personality very fiery incendiary language where it's a direct rebuke at not only roe but casey as well which yep. was another significant uh, abortion uh, opinion from the court. Uh, and it's also notable that this is appears to be a five to four decision. So yeah. what that tells you too, is that chief justice Roberts was uncomfortable with the extent of this yeah. decision and found himself wanting to find a middle ground that would un- um, undo and roll back abortion law without undoing Roe completely to keep that as a core. And that's what Roberts really wants to happen. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I mean, he's made, I think if you look at the totality of what he has said, um, that's that's kind of in the vein of who he is. And he's yeah. trying to establish himself as this moderating force on the court that, that uh, keeps it from going from one, you know, to either extreme. Yeah. But getting back to Alito's decision, and Brandon, this is a question of, of conservativeship. I, I I read that decision, or the, most of it, and I was amazed how many times Alito mentions natural law, things that, that we've done in the past, this connection back to things that, that occurred in, in common law, and just what, what are traditional practices of our society, and how much he depends on that in this decision. It, it really struck me as, if you want to know one of the basic differences when judges get to the Supreme Court between conservative and liberal slash progressive judges, conservative judges are grounded on what's traditionally been accepted as common practice or common law. 
Yeah. And that really holds that holds a lot of sway for them in deciding decisions moving forward, where your liberal and progressive judges really take almost all of that and th- just throw it out of the just it's not in their thought process. It's where do we, you know, progressive and liberals, how do we get to where we're going in this direction faster, easier, cleaner? And they don't, they don't come from that perspective. So I was really, it was really kind of surprising about how much of the language that Alito used seemed to be natural law and in some ways very kind of outdated and very kind of aggressive. Well, and the reliance on a natural law argument is something that is underpinned more from a philosophical standpoint, yeah. you find that um, in uh, you know uh, philosophy and in terms of understanding um, root of civilizations, it's not something so much it's argued in a theological context, yeah. right? You hear it a lot in theology, a lot in philosophy, not so much in legal context. So I do think that that stands out. So I think it also reinforces the argument that people have against Alito and against his decision um, as having religious roots or yeah. being grounded in that type of moral religious underpinning rather than, you know, being separated from that and based solely on the the law itself and the impact on, on rights. So, yeah, I, I agree. And it's the, so the, that the decision is, is interesting and it, this opens up a complete Pandora's box and as you said, the the fifty years is usually you know yeah. passes for precedent. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's it's rare. You would have to go pretty far back to think about the last Supreme Court decision that was overturned after this length of time. We, I mean, I don't know if what examples would exist. I mean, there's like um, Brown versus Board of Education, things like that. Right. Some of the things around slavery, Dred Scott decision, Dred Scott that have been that have been reversed. Something else that that struck me between liberal and conservative judges, and you see this with uh, Judge Roberts, your your liberal progressive judges are more likely to consider what's happening in the country and the culture right now, yeah. and how that impacts their decision. More conservative judges, they just simply do not put that into their perspective. That yeah. is just not something. And I think it's a point of of contention between the two sides. And I think it's a core disagreement where your your Alito, your Thomas is we're just head down reading the law, reading the the words. What did the words say? That's what we're doing. Where Roberts, where he breaks from them, like you said, he has a much he is way more interested in how people perceive the court, what is the reputation of the court, and what is the mood of the country and reflective to some of their decisions. Yeah, he's much more attuned to that, which which is interesting. And so he has kind of established himself as this kind of bedrock moderate force between various factions and at the you know and for a while uh he was able to lead that way because he was the penultimate vote and determining outcomes and that's no longer the case anymore so he's going to find himself on the minority side of many of these five to four votes just because of trump's ability to appoint three justices now and that's where we find ourselves and there seems to be some sort of discussion about what this verdict actually does if you're a Republican or a conservative and you're trying to put this out in the in the the most positive framing, you say this is democracy in action. It sends it back to the states. Correct. So it we're going to have this the patchwork. Now we have 13 states that have trigger laws on the book, which means that they have already passed like Missouri, Kansas laws in their state legislatures that would overturn abortion as soon as Roe v. Wade was um, overturned. Uh, so that you have that you have about 26 states overall that will likely have some type of abortion ban in place when the dust settles, um, which leaves you with 24 states that will have codified abortion yeah. to some extent, um, protect abortion. Yeah. So, it, yeah, you're going to have the country divided almost completely in half states that have legalized yeah. abortion, states that did not. And and so that's where you're going to find yourself. So it's going to be based on what part of the country you live in. So I think this is another difference between how conservatives and liberals look at abortion, where conservatives look at this as a policy issue that needs to be decided by the majority. Liberals look at this as an inalienable right that the government cannot take away, much like your right to free speech. Right. And that the the Bill of Rights and the Constitution enshrines this right there, and it's the American way and the American system. We don't allow the government to take rights away from you that were granted by you simply being here. 
So you've got two different views of what's happening now. The, the, the Republicans are very kind of vested in this narrative of this is democracy in action. Now we're going to get to see how democracy really works because people in the individual states will get to decide if abortion is legal or not. Well, the Republicans that are talking about it, right? <laughs> There's very many few Republicans that don't want to talk about Republicans this right Republicans are very centered on the leak. That's all they want to talk about right now for political purposes. Well, and, and let's back up because we have to put this in the context. Republicans for 50 plus years have been able to use Roe v. Wade oh, yeah. um, as, a, as a rallying cry. They've been able to run on a, quote, pro-life platform and say, I'm pro-life, I oppose abortion, with knowing that you know Roe v. Wade was the law of the land and it wasn't going to impact their, yeah. their chances. There have been many Republicans that have run in purple areas or even blue areas that have run um, as, quote-unquote, pro-life and have been able to garner uh, votes from pro-choice individuals who do not consider that their overriding issue because most people thought, well, this is settled law yeah. anyway, and so I can look at secondary issues and other issues as, and bring those to the forefront. That is no longer the case. This completely usurps the entire paradigm that we've yeah. been used to for 50 years. So granted, Republicans don't want to talk about it because it puts them in a very difficult position. Yeah. And it's a recognition that you know the countries, um, if you look at where Americans stand on the abortion issue, and we always get back to this. It's it's very complex. Yeah. Americans are in the middle. They have a very complicated view when it comes to abortion. Um, they uh, support keeping it legal um, by a margin of 60 to 70 percent, depending on the polls you look at, with some restrictions. There is no widespread support for far-reaching bans on abortion with no exceptions. There's no yeah. far-reaching support for legalizing abortion up to birth with no exceptions. Yes. So Americans are in the middle on a spectrum on this issue. So um, this now puts Republicans on the defensive because most Americans do not support overturning Roe v. Wade. And uh, and they can no longer now, you know, this becomes a rallying cry for the left. Republicans have been able to run um, on an anti-abortion mantra. Yeah. Uh, but if it if Roe v. Wade is overturned and you have half the states that um, ban it, uh, you know, it's no longer a rallying cry. I mean, it's no longer going to be the penultimate issue for the, the people that vote anti-abortion, but it will be for the people that vote Yeah. Pro-choice. So again, it flips the narrative. There's also also been the case for longest side that the anti-abortion voters who consider that their ultimate issue have always been much more energized to vote solely on that issue than the pro-choice yeah. side. Um, and I think there's something to that, right? I mean, I I know anecdotally, and then there's a plenty of people out there who vote Republican solely based on yeah, the abortion. Yeah, this is a single issue, vote. and they would you know, and they wouldn't necessarily vote Republican. Um, without that being an yeah. issue. Uh, and and there's a lot of people that say that's the reason that Trump ultimately was able to win when he did, because there's a lot of people who were not comfortable yeah. with him but voted on that issue alone. And one of the things this does, so I had a very passionate discussion with my wife yesterday and the other day and all week about, about, <laughs> bet, this, yeah. uh, about this topic. And one of the things that I think she started to realize is your opinion on abortion in some ways at a national level now is irrelevant. Right. Because what you have to deal with now is your state. That's correct. And in Missouri, the question's already been decided. There's a snapback law. So if you are, if this is one of the causes you want to be involved with, you're no longer involved at the federal level where you're surrounded by people who think the way you do. You're surrounded by pro-choice folks who feel abortion is a right, and it's very comfortable. Now, if you want to keep that activism up, now you've got to drop down to your state level, where you're going to be meeting all kinds of people in Missouri who don't think the way you do, think completely, have a completely opposite stance about abortion as a policy, and are making a good faith argument, right? right. I mean, you can make a good faith argument that abortion should be outlawed. One of the things why I think people are so upset by this on the dim side is now their activism changes. You change from um, like donating to the guy who ran against Lindsey Graham in South Carolina in 2020, raised $100 million, lost by 30 points. But you felt like you were doing something yeah, because you donated to that. That all goes away. Now, now the fight becomes much more, it's not as clean and it's not as, it's not as, it's not as easy, I guess, when you have to battle state by state. And that's where this is. And I think you're going to see if this flux. goes down, the whole national abortion movement goes away. 
Because yeah. now it's 50 battlegrounds you got to fight through. Well, you're going to see a shift of that money, that fundraising yep. on uh, the abortion fight, go to the state level. And so you're going to see a surge, I think, in spending for the state legislative races to change outcomes. And, and you're right. It's interesting. Like, the, the, the paradigm on this issue has shifted. So even if you go back to Ronald Reagan, George mm-hmm. W. Bush— the mantra on the Republican side has always been, um, you know, we oppose abortion except in cases of rape, incest, life, and health of the mother. Like, you're starting to see that um, disappear. And so Republicans are now looking at passing laws in places like Alabama and Louisiana that don't have exceptions sure. for life and health of nope. the mother or rape or incest. Nope. Or topical pregnancy. Right. You know, and you have Missouri, which is um, considering legislation that would um, criminalize women who go across state lines to get an abortion, which, it, by the way, is likely insane. completely unconstitutional. Insane. Like that, I can't see how that would hold up because you cannot criminalize somebody for entering another state to have a procedure that's legal there um, outside yeah. of your state. And then that's you have states like not... Colorado that have advertised that they're going to set up abortion clinics on the border with Kansas right. and turn abortion into a tourism trap. That's very distasteful. I, I think this is but, people... But you can see where this is headed. I mean, absolutely. So you see absolutely. these borderline states where you have red states on one side, blue line. I absolutely will see, can see but, that happening. That's going to be the... Is it this... <laughs> if, you, if you got the founding fathers together, they would say... Oh, this is working just like we designed it, right? In a federalist system, issues that cannot be reached consensus on at the federal level are decided state by state. And then as a citizen in the United States, you get to decide where you live. Well, it, then, isn't that exactly how this is supposed to work? This was the pre-Roe America, right? So prior to Roe uh, in 1973, it was a state-by-state issue. Now, it was still most states had banned it by that sure. time. There's only a handful of states like New York and Connecticut and a few others where it was legal. But that, that was the world before Roe. But what I'm saying is, isn't this exactly how we are set up to do this? There's an issue at the federal level we are never going to reach consensus on. Therefore, right. it, is, it, is, it is decided by the states. That's a yes. federalist system. That's all what we've said is the best way to go and what we want. Now, that's how it is when it's come to like um, uh, government-run um, health insurance prior mm-hmm. to Obamacare. Like If you look at the states have always been laboratories of democracy, you know, dis- and different states would have different policies and, and different angles. I think um, – and that was the same with like gay marriage. Now, there are some issues – um, you know, that are looked at, this gets back to our argument about what's inherently a right, yeah. you know, that have been looked at as universal rights where we've decided, hey, we need federal, um, either federal legislation or federal ruling to codify this into something that's nationally a right that everybody, all Americans can enjoy. Um, you know, we were uh, state by state uh, when it came to slavery and a civil war broke out mm-hmm. over that. So there's been some issues that have been so... Uh, filled with so much tension where, you know, we have codified them. I I think I'm coming around to the argument that if we're going to hang together as the United States in the long term, Texas has to Texas and California has to California. And that's okay. Yeah, and I agree to a degree. But I think there is a legitimate fear that this is um, starting a slippery slope because this is Mm -hmm. what one of those, you know, the inherent right to privacy that uh, the court established, um, again, with it was a very thin legal context. And I think, and liberals would do well to remember even very uh, pro-choice people like Ruth Bader Ginsburg argued that yeah. Roe, you know, the, the you know, abortion should be legalized, but the Roe decision was awful. Like it was on very thin yeah. legal ground. And a lot of people on the left acknowledge that. But the problem is like, does this roll back? Um, gay marriage, Oberville versus um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I'm on the case. California, California, yeah. yeah, Oberville versus California, and then Griswold versus Connecticut, which yeah. is what legalized birth control. Um, and you have people like Alito who have basically alluded to that in, in their writings. And so, do we revert back those rights? And does this cause? And then some of these abortion bans at the state level that are being passed are so general and so vague that they would also in, include bans on um, IUDs and uh, yeah, it's and certainly al- possible and also bans on uh, IVF. It, it's the same legal argument that overturned Roe that could overturn those. Right. What I don't understand, too, and this is why this is why I hate Republicans nominating Supreme Court justice. A Republican-nominated conservative, traditionist, 
textualist, whatever one you want to call it, Supreme Court justice, has the opinion. If it doesn't specifically say it in the Constitution, it's going to be a fight to get it recognized as a right. Mm -hmm. I just don't, I just think as a concept, we are so far past that. That might have worked in, you know, 1797, but but it doesn't work. In it does not age. work right now. And the nomination process for Supreme Court that has to change, doesn't it? Oh, completely. And I mean, look at you know maybe term limits. I mean, should we appoint justices, you know, at the, their late thirties, early forties that can reside on the court until they they die? I mean, <laughs> does this lead to any? Re- I I think both of us agree. Extending the court to 17 people or whatever, that, that's a dumb idea. Yeah. That, that's stupid. I mean, that's court packing. That, that was tried by FDR. Yeah. I mean, that didn't go over well. But there's got to be some set of reforms in the nomination process that we can look at that would make sense. I mean, we've basically allowed you to come in, interview for a lifelong position where you basically get to impact every citizen in the United States— and you don't have to answer anything. Well, and again, you know, I look back, you know, we need filibuster reform, but the filibuster was lifted when it came to Supreme Court nominees. Yep. And you think back, I mean, if that hadn't occurred, I mean, maybe we would have some of the nominees we have today or that are sitting on the court. I think, too, did Mitch McConnell overplay his hand a little bit with Merrick Garland was the start of it, and yeah. then it ended with Amy Comey Barrett. And once they did what they did there— it was obvious they were doing that because they knew Roe was in reach. They, they were doing that because they knew we have a legitimate chance to overturn Well, and there's Roe. been an intentional effort um, via the Federalist Society to nominate candidates who would overturn yes. Roe v. Wade. This has been a slow-moving plan for 50 years. Yes, but much more so in the last— couple of decades yes, because if you go back under trump if you go back to the late 90s early 2000s court that was a republican dominated supreme court that was the renquist court when uh william renquist was chief justice mm-hmm. they had a five to four republican nominated majority and they turned back several efforts to yeah. repeal roe v wade that was the court majority that um passed uh or affirmed casey the casey versus planned parenthood by case. the way another big winner in this is donald trump yeah. He already has the wind at his back for the 2024 election. Now, he's the dude that did it. If I'm Donald Trump at my next rally, I'm talking about how many Republican politicians oh, but, stood before uh, you and said, I got it done, folks. But, I mean, did you see the latest? I mean, Donald Trump was directly asked about it. He doesn't want to talk about it. Uh, yeah, but there will be a point where he does. And yeah. It won't be any type of the conversation we're having today. It will be... For years, for 50 years, Republicans got in front of you and said they were going to, I did this. So for all of the uh, evangelicals, Christians, religious folks that may have a problem with me, just remember, okay, I got all these other issues over here that you don't like. Who got the white whale? Yeah. It was me. I mean, this just, this just cleared the field for Trump, too. Do you think DeSantis uh, is going to run? No, there's no way. I still, Oh, you really don't think he's going to run? No, he's oh, too smart. I, he's too smart. Trump has the wind at his back. Why muddy yourself and, I, and, and, and take a chance at through this primary, you do damn—give it four years. I, I just don't think DeSantis is going to run. I, I think a lot depends on what happens between uh, now and the end of the year in terms of charges brought against Trump, in terms of money issues, in terms of lawsuits, which will determine whether or not he runs in 2024. Again, I could see him running, but at the same time, he's also known to be someone who's fairly lazy, and I don't know know, at the end of the day if he wants to run again, because he's able to grift off of this as well. There's So the benefits of having the presidency again, it gives him legal protection, uh, but also he's able to to fundraise and grift without restriction while he's not president. So there's that. (laughs) Let's get back to Roe, and we'll use this as a pivot to politically. Yeah. What does this mean? mean to the midterms i i think maybe marginally it may be worth a handful of of uh congressional seats and there'll be some republican senator that steps on his tongue and does something stupid but i I don't think you're gonna i don't think this pivots the axis much does it become the central messaging in every race senate and house for democrats across the country are they able to stay on message it could 
But that would mean the Democrats develop a centralized, effective political message that they're able to to bake throughout all of their candidates and deliver consistently. Brandon, have you ever seen a Democratic Party capable of doing that? I have that? not. By the way, I haven't well seen— Well beyond our reach. I'm eager to watch like reset polling that comes out on this, on the midterms, on people's thoughts about the, the case. It's still too soon because we're not even a week out yet to, <clears throat> to see if it changes the pendulum. The other issue is— Typically, despite whatever else is happening, we'll see if Roe can change this. The economy is always at the forefront. And at a time where we have record inflation, highest in 40 years, and and angst about rising fuel prices, the question is, can Roe supersede inflation as yeah. the top issue in voters' minds, or at least in women's minds? That remains to be seen. What's a tank of gas costing you these days, Brandon? Uh, when I last filled up, and I have a Honda Civic that mm-hmm. gets good gas mileage, I think it was forty-five something dollars. Yeah. I have a Toyota Camry, and it was fifty-seven dollars. My point being is there are very many practical, real-world issues that have people fired up. Yeah, to break that bubble, to have this penetrate, very difficult. All of those things that have already baked into the midterms is going to be extremely difficult. Yeah. So unless the Republicans make a massive miscalculation somewhere, which I don't think they can, because there's not enough, there's, there's not 60 votes in Congress for a federal ban on, on, on abortion. The Republicans aren't going to push that because no. they know they don't, they don't have the votes to do it. So we're all there's kind not of even now, 55 votes. No, for I, that. I don't I don't think so. If the Republicans won't even talk about the topic, they're not going to kind of try to try to you know really go balls out and do a, a federal ban on abortion. Yeah, that, that just won't happen if they win the Senate, even if they had 60 votes at the end of 2022. I don't think they would. I don't think they'd do it. Right. So it's going to be interesting to see. Can Democrats find a message? codify that message to the whole party and deliver it effectively. And I think that message has to be about Republicans' threat to to restrict rights. This has to be tied into Jan 6. You've got to paint this whole broad picture of the Republican party. Yeah, the greater uh, issue about rights, how that filters on down, like you said, to everything from gay marriage to birth control to all of these issues that that are at risk now. And so they have to make that argument. I think they have an opening. It creates an opportunity for them, but it's a very small window. And again, the, the question is whether they can remain on message. Who, I'm trying to think of who's a who's a kind of middle of the road Democratic senator running for re-election. Uh, who's up this time around? That's a uh, we'll, we'll just role play. I'm I'm generic Democratic Senate candidate A, and I, I I'm a current senator. I'm running for re-election, and we are at a debate. And I start off with, I need you all to listen to me for the next three to five minutes. Because I need to paint you a picture of what the Republican Party has become. And we need to start back with Trump. And I need to walk you through everything through J6 up to this decision so you understand where I'm coming from. And then my, my Republican uh, counterpart gets up and says, gas prices suck, don't they? <laughs> Crowd roars. That, there's, no, there's no, I don't think there's a way that you can craft this message there's no way you can nuance this. No. We're going to have to find a way that we can we can we can do, we can dilute this down to a yellable slogan like MAGA or America First or whatever. We, we've got to find a way to to get this digestible to to our voting base. And I just don't think the Democrats have. Who is the skilled politician that can do that? God damn it, Bill Clinton or Barack Obama, they yeah. would have totally turned this around. Biden has none of that skill, no. none of that support, Kamala none Harris of that energy. Doesn't have that ability. She's a total non-starter. So that I mean, we always go back to that, right? It's a lack of an effective messenger and communicator. And again, there's we don't have that on the Democratic side. I mean, heck, I mean, we don't even know who the Democratic candidate in 2024 is going to I, be. I, I'll bet everything I own that it's not Biden. It can't be. Oh Biden. yeah, it can't be Biden. There's just no way. And it's up in the air whether or not that's Kamala Harris. I mean, it, so it the, can't be. And which means, and who it is? Like we have no idea. I mean, I'm that's, reading articles in the Hill these days, and the question is: Should the Democrats just concede 2024? Should we just say, "Hey, we'll just we'll just run by. We're going to lose. We know we're going to lose. We're oh, not well, going to put a ton of effort into this." Two years out, you can't concede in election. I mean, you know who who has the most impact on the presidential election is the sitting president. Yeah, because they win re-election like almost all the time. So Biden will will he will have the most impact over who wins by his decision. Right? Does he run or does he does he not run? 
Well, and again, two years is a long time, nope. especially with the economy. Um, so the heir apparent, I mean, could have at that point uh, point to Biden's record in terms of having to reduce but inflation. Biden can't campaign. The only well, reason true. Biden's president was he got to t- he, in 2020, he got to COVID campaign. He doesn't have the energy physically or mentally. No, and I'm he not can't. calling him, you know, uh, I'm not saying he has dementia, but as an 82 year old, 81 year old man, he doesn't have the energy to do to put on a presidential campaign. No way. I mean, I, we're going to have to, uh, you're going to have to bring Barack Obama back out to campaign on the Well, the they'll just, just Adderall Trump up or whatever he does, and he'll mm-hmm. just be a lunatic for the next year and a half. So. Yeah, I don't think Biden's running. But anyway, yeah, back to how how Roe affects the midterms. I think on the edges at best. And I think that the big opportunity to have it really swing is limited by the Democrats just don't have a a politician with the skill to lay it out. I I think there are some states like uh, Pennsylvania where it could have a positive impact for Democrats in terms of getting their voters out where those are kind of on the margin neck and neck now, both the Senate race and the uh, governor's race is it is it the Senate race or the governor's race? I'm blanking out. Where the incumbent attorney general Josh Shapiro is running on the Democrat side. God damn it! I've heard that name on a podcast, but I didn't. Which he's actually a really good uh, yeah. candidate. He's a well-spoken, more moderate Democrat who I think has the ability to keep that even in a bad year for Democrats. Um, so that that's a possibility. Um, but, but there's a handful of states where, you know, it can possibly make the difference depending on turnout. I think, I think we both agree that on the edges, this will have an impact and there's going to be somebody lose either a Senate or a Congress seat because they handle this completely wrong. Yeah. But in the end, this doesn't turn a 25 gain into a loss for the Republicans. It just there's just too much stuff to run on, and midterms are usually a referendum on the president and a referendum on how you feeling about things. Yeah. I don't know anybody that would answer that question. That oh, I feel good. Things are good in the country right now. And again, do you remember the last president who actually gained seats for his party in a midterm? I mean, you have to go. I know FDR did far back. Uh, George W. Bush, 2002, God. right after 9-11, Republicans yeah. actually gained seats. But that, I mean, that was an anomaly based on part, the yeah, environment. Part of this loss is just historic pattern. Right. It, it just happens. And you talk about the burden or the weight of governing. Boy, the Dems picked a really shitty time to own all three branches of government. They did, the yeah. burden of governing is, is difficult, would have been difficult for anybody. Oh, yeah. I mean, they I'm were not saying they're doing a good job, but they stepped into But no, they were really left a mess spot. by Trump. I mean, you have the, the pandemic and picking up the pieces yeah. from that. You have the economy the way it was. Um, and it, it's difficult, right? Because I think, you know, the even on the the good news, like, I mean, unemployment is down to 3.6%, yeah. which is phenomenal. Um, there's actually a labor shortage, you yeah. know, <laughs> but it, it, co- companies have more jobs than they can fill. So on some aspects like that, we're doing really well. But then on prices, on inflation, yeah. we're in a bad place. We have interest rates, which, which are being hiked, and there's the danger yeah. there of starting a recession if we get that, you know, uh, go way too far with that. So it's it's a very dicey situation. You can't and be a message that as well as you would like to. And the Biden administration is just ignoring these things. I mean, they really have no active plan to fight inflation. Yeah. They don't talk about it that much. I mean, this is a the the road decision is something that people have to sit down. Like I said, this is gonna take time to digest. This is going to be, it's going to take some time to figure out what does a post-Roe world look like because we've never been here before. Yeah. It's, but it's really easy to get pissed when it's $72 to fill up your Honda Pilot. Because that, that's, that's something you see and feel every, every day. And that's something that every everybody day. sees and feels on a personal When you're starting to make decisions about, do I really need to drive over there because gas is so expensive? Nothing else, I don't believe, is really going to permeate that bubble right. to get people off of, it's just not going good right now. This is just another example of, it's not going good right now. And again, if you want to punish Republicans, I get that. But don't forget the Dems here. Remember that time? I mean, multiple times we've had 60, 60 Senate majorities. We never passed anything to codify this. I, th- so that's a good question. I uh, wanted to address that, not only in the Senate and the House, but also on the state level. Yeah. A lot of these places like Wisconsin that have these trigger laws that go into effect, at one point, Democrats did control those sure. levers of Take government. Take it off the books. And, you know, how come they didn't pass laws to codify it at that, that time? They didn't. So again, a lot of missed opportunity. 
in terms of being able to and and maybe some of it was just uh naivete and disbelief that Roe v. Wade could ever be overturned. But again, you would have had to just be completely ignoring the systematic effort on the right, you know, over the course yeah. of fifty years to do this. But there's no more I think Chuck Schumer standing up in the Senate giving his passion speech about how horrible the Republicans are <laughs> and promising this week they're going to schedule a vote that codifies uh, Which uh, isn't going to go anywhere. Is the epitome of American politics in 2020. Performative. A old man who nobody likes giving a performative speech about nothing, promising an action that he can't deliver, deliver on. for the only purpose of making you excitable. Correct. There it is. I, I, That's I, really all you need to know. Uh, the last word I want to say on this, too, is there is a danger for Democrats to overreach on this. Oh, I yeah. think their messaging has to be very clear. A good example is Beto O'Rourke, who's running for governor of Texas, has said that he wants to codify access to abortion up to the point of birth with no restrictions. And we need to remember that the uh, American majority that doesn't support overturning Roe v. Wade doesn't mean that they are you know, satisfied with having, you know, abortion on demand with no restrictions. There's a spectrum there. Uh, The vast majority of Americans favor keeping it legalized, but with certain restrictions um, up to the point, you know, especially near viability. And so if Democrats get too far away, away, where they, you know, focus on making this an unlimited right, they're going to lose portions of the electorate that are completely with them on the Roe v. Wade decision. And so, again, there needs to be... And as Democrats, we've already lost the thread. We've lost the thread over the last 20 years yeah. where abortion went from safe, legal, and rare. That is language almost that all, all Americans of us could agree can find on. some way yeah. to agree on to now it's debor- abortion on demand up to the point of birth. Well, and even the tone and the way that abortion is talked about has changed, oh. right? Where it's like, it used to be like, this is a decision some women are in. It's not a, a great decision. It's not optimal. They, you know, women should have the ability to make this choice for themselves, but we can't, you know, we don't want to pretend that, you know, it, that this is something to celebrate. Whereas now there's this idea of let's celebrate it every, you know, and let's encourage it and, and, and and again, I think that that fails to see that for most Americans and for most women too, like the, there's nuance here. Like there's ambiguous and ambivalence on you know even for those who have personally had an abortion, many of them, you know, say I had to have it because of X, Y, Z. Yeah. But at the same time, like it's not something that like you know I that I'm excited or want to preach from the rooftops. I was put in a very difficult decision, and this is the and decision I this made. This is a great point because that has something to do with it. I don't know what, and by that I mean the fact that the left has made abortion this cultural positive thing, it almost seems like. I don't know what or how much that had with driving the right, but it had to in some ways. Yeah, That cultural pivot from safe, legal, and rare to on-demand up to the point of birth, that is off-putting to, I would say, the vast majority of Americans. And what I've never understood about abortion— is that if you, I'm, I'm pro-choice, I believe you're pro-choice too. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm more in the middle on abortion, so I, you know, okay, so yeah. I'll use us as an example. Right. Any argument that you would make about abortion that's contrary to mine is in good faith. Right. Because you're arguing for life, and at the end of the day, this is where the dibs are going to step on our nuts. At the end of the day, you're arguing about the killing of a child. And let's not even have the argument about what viability is. I don't give a shit if it's a clump of cells or a fully formed fetus. If you let it go, it will become a human being. Right. It is a potential life with potential at any point in time after conception. So we're boxed in in our argument, or we used to be boxed in in our argument by the morality of what an abortion was. When we've thrown that away, I don't think that helped us at all. No. You have Lena Dunham, I'm pretty sure it was her, who wrote some op-ed about she's a full woman or she couldn't be a full woman because she hadn't had an abortion yet. That's ridiculous. And the fact that we're promoting that to young women is also ridiculous. And while, yes, I completely agree with Debor- – I'm completely pro-choice. I'm not up to birth, but I think you know the first two trimesters, unregulated, third trimester, severely regulated. Right. I think most people That's could. Where I think most Americans are there at some level, yeah. And, I do, and how did we miss the fact that it's distasteful to argue more than that? And I think that's something the Dems have to take a look at on themselves. Right. We've lost the cultural 
we, in some way, we haven't lost the, 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 it's a right, but we've lost a little bit of abortion's a celebration. We, we, we've lost focus on what it really is. And we've, we can't incorporate that into our argument And understanding anymore. that there's a wide segment of people who support keeping it legalized but are still uneasy with it, uns- yes. find it unsettling, uh, that don't as see it as— As you should. Right. That, and, and, you know, there's a real argument to be made that you could go after Republicans and say, if you are truly pro-life, you should support birth control and comprehensive sex education. Yes. And then support for uh, women who decide to raise their children post-birth with child care and resources. And they could— you know, make that broader argument rather than focusing solely on celebrating the cause of abortion and, and having and lifting any and every restrictive, because again, there are people like me who are out there who think it should be completely restricted in later stages who support things like sonograms and waiting periods, but not completely overturning it. See, we, we, we could debate that. Yeah. I'm not totally into that, especially the sonogram thing, but I understand your point. I get that, hey, this is a living human inside of you. You know, there is some logic you could make about those those arguments. And at the very least, there's probably common agreement that I think both sides could find on making sure that when women make that choice, they're given as much information as possible, that, you know, it's not something either by either side they're pressured into, right? So that yes. there's, you know, again, it's... Uh, alleviating the the pressure that they would get from making that decision either way, so I, I think that that's the opportunity there. Uh, and I and I think that there's again there's a lot of gray, there's a lot of nuance, um, and a lot of women I know personally are fall somewhat in that spectrum. They're very, I think, um, uh, fearful of what's happening with Roe v. Wade overturned. Um, many of them have personal experiences. We were talking about and. Uh, I'm going to mess up on the saying the word and topic and atopical atopical pregnancies yeah. um, and, and other issues that have either uh, um, impacted themselves health wise yeah. or the potential baby. But I think it fails to see there's a whole spectrum of reasons too when women get abortions and there's many who get it out of necessity who don't necessarily, you know, want to terminate the pregnancy. Yeah. Um, but there are life threatening reasons. There are, um, health threatening reasons to the potential baby too. Uh, and so, you know, when you have something like Roe v. Wade overturned and states passing their own laws that don't look at that nuance, um, you know, it's, uh, it creates a lot of issues. Christian Gillibrand is a horrible politician. My evidence of this is that she ran for president and her entire platform was, I'm a mother, which in no way qualifies you to be the president of the United States. Right. She gave a press conference or participated in a press conference this week, and she dusted off the old uh, dusty uh, trope of men have no place in this. Really? We don't? We have no place in raising children? Legally, we have all kinds of responsibilities when it comes to children. If you're using that men just need to shut up and let women decide this, that's a that's a dumb argument too. It's a very dumb argument. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think you have to be careful on um, the messaging, and I think both sides do as well. And, be, and to my Democratic friends, when you're arguing out there, be 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 sensitive to the fact that what you're arguing about is ending the life of a human being. Right. You and this is where I think we've. For us to reach a consensus of how to move forward would be both sides operating with some humility, some empathy, and some grace. And we might as well just pick up bats and beat the shit out of each other. I do wonder in terms of effectiveness or success of, you know, these state bans and the overturning row, um, how much that's going to be diluted or reduced by technology, right? A significant number of abortions now are pill-based. Tennessee already banned those. Did you see that? I, I saw that. But the problem is, like, how do they control and enforce I that no ban? Clue. Because I, no I, I, I don't know that there's effective ways to do that because you can circumvent by ordering online and going through many different you know ways to be able so, to i was wondering this and I, I think this is right if you're a young woman sitting in kansas can you order abortion pills online and get them you can yeah i and think in fact, you can. a lot of that was done during the pandemic yeah i mean that there was a real True. shift towards um pill-based abortion that's the other thing that's never been that's this has never made sense that we we focus on the the, the, the clinical procedure of abortion, where is the medical side of this? Which I think there are more medical abortions than there are procedural abortions yeah, that, that is, in the United States. that has shifted. That wasn't the case, I think, even 10 years ago. But yeah. the, and so 
I think that presents a challenge too in terms of enforcing these types of bans. Uh, there's a um, outfit in Europe that supports an organization that um, supports women um, with um, uh, abortifacient drugs who yeah. you know live in countries where it's banned, and they've been talking about sh- um, shipping pills to women in red states. <laughs> so you know there apparently appear to be plenty of ways to get around some of sure. these bans as well. So the the question is. You know, and states are going to try to be more creative and trying to enforce it. But most states don't have the ability; they don't yeah. have the to to enforce this. And where do you start? I mean, it's just like criminalizing women who go out of state to have abortions. Like, how are you going to do that logistically? And why? For for what reason? What 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 policy good? What cultural good? Are you accomplishing by doing something like that? Well, there's there's none. There's none. I mean, let alone that it's unconstitutional too. I mean, it's just it, it would be I, I it would analogy would be criminalizing someone, a Kansas resident who goes to Colorado and smokes weed there, and then when they return, you um, prosecute them for doing something illegal, even yeah. though it was done in Colorado Kansas, where it was legal. Dick move by Kansas. Right. I, mean, I can see I, Kansas doing that too. But but constitutionally, that would not hold up. There's there's no way that that could hold up with the, the I mean, we're, we're a nation of states, but we're also the United States. Yeah. And, and I mean, you can't, one state can't criminalize something that's done in another state that's perfectly legal outside of their state. There's I think no legal ground for that. The most interesting thing about this over the next five years is going to watch, do we make the pivot to more awareness of what federalism is in states' rights, and we learn to live with this, or do we... The alternative to that is we want more centralized federal control. I, I don't... I, what's going to be really hard to talk to people about this issue, and I'm not taking a swipe at anybody, is that people just don't know enough about how the federal government and state governments work to really understand what's happening with this getting pushed to the states. Yeah, I mean, most people don't know who their state senator or state no. representative is, and they confuse state government with federal government and, all the time. Even with my wife, trying to talk with her about, okay, you're mad at this. It's a 50-state thing, and you want to overturn it Where? Okay, I, I want to overturn it in my home state, right? That's where you would you would go Missouri. most. It, it completely reframes the argument. Because back then, my wife could give $100 to Planned Parenthood and feel good that she was supporting women's abortion rights throughout the United States. That's gone. Yeah. That's a significant change. Where does that energy go? Where does that money go? Does it become more and it grows to fight this? Or does it... Com- dissipate does it go away it's really a state-by-state strategy is what it becomes and you have to have chapters and you have to have organizational capability at the state level in every single state that's you know with their head to the ground knowing what the policy implications are what the legislation is i I mean it just it's it's it becomes much more complex because if i'm a republican running for any type of national office i just say well you don't like the federalist system the fact, what, what are you saying to me? When you say, I don't like the idea now that 50 states get to decide this issue, are you saying that you're against a federalist system? Are, are you saying that you want more power at the federal government? What power? Yeah. I mean, this is going to get people... Now, now you have to ask people the question, do you support the basic framework that defines the United States political system? Because if you do, then you support this decision. There is nothing about this decision other than it goes against precedent, which there's even precedent for ending precedent. Um, uh, Dred Scott is a perfect example. I think it, it was a Brown versus Board, Board of Education. The that then versus yeah. Park. So there's a precedent for overturning these things. My, my point to the Democrats are, again, anywhere you put your foot down to argue, you're going to be on shaky ground. And we've got to be very precise and very very articulate and very clear about how we message this. Well, I, they have to argue it from a standpoint of settled law, precedent, unraveling other yep. uh, items that have come to be recognized as human rights, and that it, it creates a slippery slope uh, and, and an avalanche, essentially. Republicans are about creating political instability across the political spectrum, and they're doing this to muddy the water in an attempt, I think, to put Trump back in office. I don't see how you can look at the political landscape and not not come to that conclusion. The entire Republican Party has closed ranks around Trump to protect him. 
I mean, he still has kingmaker power oh, in, in the Republican Party. Speaking of that, how comfortable would you be with J.D. Vance voting for the next? Well, let's just, let's just lay them all out there. How comfortable are you going to be with J.D. Vance, Dr. Oz, and Herschel Walker vote for the Supreme Court? And Herschel Walker's first question is, what's the Supreme Court? That's a scary proposition. Uh, but I would say I'm most afraid of J.D. Vance yeah. because he is educated, he's smart, uh, and he has the uh, ability to, I think, codify autocracy and authoritarianism to a degree that mm-hmm. Trump hasn't been able to do because Trump can never stay on message and is incoherent. At the end of the day, Trump is all about himself. Where J.D. Vance has done this 180-degree pivot um, you know, out of just what, this need for power, and I think he has a much potential to be destructive and much more damaging. If you look at what he's tweeted out, his statements, um, the talk about um, having Trump return to office and replace the entire federal bureaucracy yeah. and fire every oh, yeah. person who yeah. works for the government, like that is what keeps me up at night and what I find very scary. If I were to prioritize any of those Senate races in terms of wanting to see a Republican defeat in the general, it would be J.D. Vance um, I agree. in Ohio. I mean, of the three big Senate seats that Trump's endorsed, Herschel Walker's an idiot. He'll win on name, name recognition. But he's the same as Tommy Tupperville. Yeah. He, he doesn't give a shit. Just tell me what you want me to do. I'll come in when I have to vote, and it just is what it is. Dr. Oz is is just a salesman grifter. He's done this for years. He's used TV and audience to grift on. Do you think he'll win the general? I have no idea. Is that Connor Lamb and that other guy, Feather, Feather, whatever? Uh, Yeah, they're battling it out. So, uh, and he's the lieutenant governor, right? He is, yeah. So... He's more Bernie, progressive. He is. the pot, and Connor Lamb's the centrist moderate. He is leading Connor Lamb... Yeah. I've also heard he's a complete empty vessel. Just has he he can deliver the tagline, but just there's nothing no beneath substance, that. Yeah. So I think he has a chance, Doctor Oz. Just on name, let me ask you this question: How many people over the age of sixty bought a product that they saw on <laughs> Oprah that Doctor Oz endorsed? Uh, uh, Two hundred thousand? Yeah. Three hundred thousand? I mean, he and he he's just there to steal and grift. Yeah. Because that's what he is. Oh, that's what he's done. I to mean, your he's point, been a peddler of... It's yeah. J.D. Vance that's the real, real problem. Yeah. And how do you create... Maybe they taught you this in... in, in um, and J.D. Vance school. is only young. He's only like, oh, what, yeah. 38 or something? How do you create a, uh, a, a platform, Brandon, to run for Senate that's all about hating the United States Senate? That's what I don't understand. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, either. all he talks about is the destruction of the federal government. And he wants Trump back in, as you said, to destroy the executive branch and what a disruptive force he's going to be in the Senate. How can you run for something that you, you so obviously despise? That, that's a Republican thing. I've never, I've never understood that. Yeah, I haven't either. Elect me for Senate because I hate being a senator. <sighs> I, I don't know. I, I think... I am reading a lot into J.D. Vance's victory and Trump's power in the Republican Party. Am I overthinking that, or do you think that's still, I'm in the right spot? No, you're in the right spot, because if you look at J.D. Vance, I mean, he was polling fourth and fifth. I mean, he came from behind. You know, you have to realize he hasn't even had residency in Ohio in a long time. He reestablished residency. And he won by like six or eight points, didn't yeah. he? Yeah, uh, and kind of just swooped in um, yeah. as this... Peter, Peter uh, Thiel-backed candidate, um, and then got Trump's endorsement, endorsement, and the polling changed, and he came to the forefront um, against uh, Josh Mandel, who has a long political history. He's in a the kook. State. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but again, you can't, I think, summarize it any other way than Trump still has power. I mean, that endorsement makes a, a difference. And Trump isn't going to win all of his the races he endorses in, and, and Trump is also like all about winning and that's why like he pulled his endorsement from Bobrux yeah, yeah in Alabama um when he saw that his polling was going down uh, cuz for Trump it's all about the wins and notching and those he'll, wins. he'll shit on Purdue at some point cuz he's 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 not going to beat yeah. Kemp in a, in a primary No that's not going to happen But isn't JD Vance everything we hate about the primary system Yeah you have to be ultra radical because you've got to run to the 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 hardest wing of your party's base which he has definitely done. Right. I guess the question now is, has he, has he created, has he put so much tape out there that it can be used against him in a general election? 
And I don't really know a lot about Tim Ryan. I know he Tim ran Ryan is, for so he's probably he's run for some bigger slots. He's the strongest Democrat, right? He has, but he's a congressman. He's okay. from the House, so he serves a, uh, a Youngstown-based Ohio district right now, which is very blue-collar, industrial, steel Damn. mill. He's the best candidate the Democrats could have in that race, which makes it a race. So I think he does have a chance to win that because he does have the blue collar background. Um, he talks middle class issues. Yeah. He talks about minimum wage and he's been able to win reelection time and time again, even in uh, with a district and constituency that has supported Trump. So if there's anybody that has a chance, it's Tim Ryan. For once, I think the Democrats read the tea leaves and they've been able to nominate a candidate who's uh, has an opportunity, which is rare, I think. <laughs> Yeah, I JD Vance. It's going to be interesting to see. Is he going to moderate himself now? For but how does he? He's gone so far to the crazy. I mean, and you you lose credibility at some point. Do you? I mean, this you, is part of the Trump effect. This is a guy do back you? in 2016 who implied he was considering voting for Hillary because he could absolutely not vote for Trump. Sure, and he goes from that and to being disparaging to Trump to being his biggest cheerleader and just you know every and he still won. And he still won. Comfortably. Yeah. None of that mattered. None, right. All that mattered was Trump's endorsement. Trump, what, what the Trump effect tells you is that you can be as lunatic as you want to win, and then you can just completely reinvent yourself at the next and stage. Let's not forget that— And Man- no one will hold you accountable. Mandel and the, his uh, Vance's other opponents ran plenty of ads against him where they used his past words or tried to use his past words against him. It didn't matter. Sure. I mean, none of it mattered. And I mean, even did you hear Trump's misstep on the campaign trail when Where he, he combined J.P. Mandel, Mandel or something? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, because Trump doesn't, you know, doesn't he doesn't care. No, I mean, it's just about pegging wins and get, uh, keeping his name out there and, and having that influence. Uh, but uh, at, at the end of the day, he still has that sway. And that's what that is the most lasting or that's the most damaging effect to Trump and something I think is going to be long lasting. Yeah. Get as nutty as you want in the primary. Talk about bringing Trump back in and firing the entire federal. There's no, there's no penalty to be paid. No. What, what Trump said, what Trump showed is you can just be, say anything you want, just deny, lie, and just keep going. And I guess now we've just said that's politics 101. Again, we've, I think the needle has moved and, the the norms have changed to such a degree that we don't even stop and think about that anymore. Like, it's just, it's so crazy that we're just used to that. And if Trump gets back into 2024, now he's going to have a group of people that he's helped get elected in the Senate and Congress that's going to be surrogates for him on the campaign trail. Not only that, if we have a close election at all, or we're facing a repeat of what we saw in 2020, like there won't be any hesitation. He'll have the numbers there to overturn the election, um, send the electoral college results to the House, and have the House vote yeah. on. I mean, we're it's a completely new paradigm for so for those that care about electoral norms and the democratic process and you know the fact that we were able to just barely avoid a constitutional crisis in 2020 like there won't be any avoiding of that in 2024 no there is only one entity that can control slash end donald trump and that's the republican party yeah and they will they won't do it they won't do it that 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 question's been asked and answered a hundred times they're they're just simply not going to do it and it's so infuriating. I think uh, there's a new book that's coming out. This too will pass um, about those reporters. And again, another book on the Trump era. But uh, Mitch McConnell was quoted in the book as uh, referring to Trump as an SOB and saying, you know, Democrats are going to save us for, from that SOB. He was counting on the impeachment vote. And yet still, you know, no. I mean— a complete coward would have voted for impeachment no. himself or encouraged his he, members to do so. With one vote, he could have ended it, and he didn't. And, and according to the book, which I find this super infuriating and uh, frustrating and, and found myself just cussing up a storm, uh, apparently Mitch McConnell assumed many of his members would vote for impeachment, and then many of them did not. And so he did have put himself out there telling them what to do, and then he was caught off guard by the fact that so few actually voted for impeachment. And it's like, <laughs> are you kidding me? I mean— uh, <laughs> Mitch McConnell is the classic. Show me, show me which way my people are marching, so I can go lead them. Right, and that's. I think there's another expert in that book where he just couldn't understand Liz Cheney taking a moral stance because he's like she's going to lose power. 
What, what benefit is that? He saw no benefit to what Liz Cheney did because she gave up her position and she gave up her institutional control. Right. And to McConnell, that's, there's nothing more important than that. That's true. Yeah. yeah. For, for Dems getting angry, let's not forget old Uncle Mitch in his role in right. this. We can't do anything to him because he's protected by the geographical boundaries of Kentucky. What he did with Merrick Kentucky. Garland set into motion. That's right. This would have never happened if it wasn't for the and Merrick And again, folks, this, this is what... <laughs> There's no sense to focus on McConnell anymore because it's state by state. There is no central target anymore for abortion people to point to as a rallying cry. No. There's no one policy. There's no one law. There's no one person. And I think what Democrats are going to slowly start to learn, this is going in its best case, this defuses the argument. My wife's passion and energy for anti for donating to Planned Parenthood and anti-abortion causes, I believe is going to diminish when now it's the realization all you can impact is Missouri. Yeah, that's it. And it will in the recent in recent uh, in the recent future or the upcoming future, there's not going to be a chance to vote it out in Missouri. Right. So you're stuck. Do you still donate your hundred bucks? I- a month to Planned Parenthood? I mean, the closest you could get is get a group that would get a uh, statewide referendum on the ballot, which Missouri does have a referendum process to yeah. uh, on that. You're never going to get that through, I don't think. I don't, yeah. I don't know. It would be interesting to see. Well, that's that has a chance of possibility, unlike be, through be, the legislature, because it's never going to happen. Yeah, but where that breaks board. down is who's going to write that? What yeah. is that language going to be? You've looked at laws before at the state level that are three paragraphs long for you to read. Oh, yeah. Do you think Missouri could craft? That would be that would be a tough lift and a right. hard ask for someone to do. Also, I think last thing I want to say is Democrats need to take a very hard look at themselves. Back when the Merrick Garland incident happened, I don't remember the details. But looking back, like, why did it Democrats, like, try to block other legislation? Why did they utilize procedural maneuvers to bring everything to a halt? It feels like, you know, they just shrugged. They let Republicans do that. And then there was no response to that. Like, I mean, even from, I thought President Obama himself was very weak, you know, in terms of rolling over. Like, why do Democrats roll over like that? Jody and I both said... If Chocolate Jesus puts the word out to come to the Capitol and surround the Supreme Court, we'll be there. Millions of people would have been there. Yeah. You're right. We completely rolled over. Don't this, – this is good for the Democrat friends. We've got some blame in this too. And, and looking back, I mean, you know, there, there was a little bit of pressure, not much, but there was a little bit of talk of, you know, when Obama was president, especially in 2014, 2015, about having Ruth Bader Ginsburg retiring. This is another one. And, and she wanted to stay on the court. And again, you know, it's like that would have yeah. also been a change things completely. And instead, you know, we're at where we are now. Actions have consequences in this. Right. When we had the 60 vote majority under Obama, why didn't we pass? This legislation. Yeah. We've had all kinds of opportunities to codify this. We never took it. So we've got to share some blame to why, why we're here. And again, why didn't we do that? Because nobody wanted the political tag put on him about that's the senator who sponsored the abortion bill. Right. That person voted for an abortion. It was completely political why we didn't do it. And because we didn't, now we're standing in this spot. So it always goes back to retaining power. And so that's why none of these things get 100%. done. 100%. It's all a game about who's got the lever of power. And nobody wants to give power nobody up. Nobody wants to give it up. Brandon, is spring officially here? It's supposed to be like 90 degrees it, next it, week. So I would say that spring has passed us. We're going from like winter to summer. This past week, we had um, temperatures in the low 50s, like 50, 51 degrees, and we're going to 90s and 100 degree heat yeah. index. So we're so going right into summer. Right into summer. I mean, you know, within a few days. So welcome to Kansas City. So it's going to be Fleeting humid spring shit. and fall, really long winter yeah. and summer. That's what it's like, yeah. I have to give a shout out to my daughter is graduating uh, college next weekend. Oh, nice. 13th. She graduated on time with honors. That's amazing. She won the Drury University Communications Department Student of the Year or whatever. She got nominated to do a TED Talk at her college, which she did, wow. which I got the chance to see, which was excellent. And the best news, Brandon, is she already has a job. Congratulations to her. So, yeah. I, I, it just, we, I mean, Joe and I, we just couldn't be 
We're just on cloud nine. Something in the communications field? Is that what she's doing? She's going to work for a company called InTouch in Kansas City. Oh, I yeah. think they do, they do pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical marketing. marketing. Yeah, yeah, they're a big, well-known yep. national agency based here in yep. Kansas City. So she yeah. is she's That's exciting. just as happy as she could be. So Well, yeah, congratulations to your daughter. That's uh, I didn't realize that she was already graduating yeah. senior because I know you've spoken yeah. about her different I know. times and yours hey, are just fun. Brandon, have you looked for an entry-level apartment in a while in the greater Kansas City area? I have not. Are and you? I'm not complaining because yeah. I, I know Kansas Kansas City's real estate market's probably better and more accessible than most in the country, but it's not as easy as I remember it. I, I mean, mean, in terms of price, rent price, yeah. Um, anything that's new is completely filled and they have a waiting list. Mm. Buying a small house, that's totally off the table. Oh, yeah. By the way, I know a couple right now, dual income, just one child, that said a couple years ago with their um, uh, salaries, they could have easily afforded a pretty significantly yeah. sized home anywhere in the suburbs. They cannot find a place. They're getting outbid by investors. Yeah, one of the homes that they bid on um, went forty thousand over. They offered forty thousand over asking, but an investor offered one hundred twenty five thousand over asking. Good. In cash for everything, and they're like, we can't pay in can't cash for yeah. But that's what that's what's happening now. If, if so, you want to know something that the federal government should step in on, that right there, yeah. I and, and I don't see how this can be sustained. I feel like this no. has to bottom out at some point. Seven hundred square foot apartments are eleven hundred to fifteen hundred dollars. Yeah, the apartment prices what are the insane. Hell? Yeah. It used to be in Kansas City if you were dual income or you had an income level of. Let's say three hundred thousand dollars. You pretty much could pick wherever you wanted to live in the city. Right. There were some neighborhoods that were out of range, but you had free run. Now, that's not just not all. the case. Yeah. When I was in, uh, when I was in Florida for the month, I was sitting there one day, and the news was on in the background. And my parents live in Lee County, Florida, and the news story was there was only three homes in Lee County, Florida that were $300,000 or less for sale. Wow. That's it. And the whole premise was, hey, Florida runs on $15 an hour workers. We can't, we can't keep attracting that type of labor force. No, you can't do that. If we haven't I also saw an article today that junior colleges in California, especially on some of the coastal cities, are struggling to the point that they might close when the average home in a county is $4 million dollars. There's nobody with kids lives there. No, no families live there. It's mostly older retired folks that that live there. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I am I am over the moon that Katie is graduating and, and everything she's done. Extremely proud of her. That's awesome. Yeah. My uh, my fear now is just for for kids of her generation the the home ownership dream that we had. I don't it's know if that's going to yeah. be a reality for them. It's just going to be very very different. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. And sad. All right. That's our hour. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks, Craig. Thanks for listening to Two Men in the Middle. Make sure to give us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our website at twomeninthemiddle.com. Drop us an email at twomeninthemiddle at gmail.com or tweet at us at Two Men in the Middle. We'll see you next week.